To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash give tech. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash give tech. Hey, it's Lily Jamali. Marketplace Tech has a new limited series out on YouTube called Decoding Democracy. With rapid advancements in new technology like AI, disinformation efforts are more convincing and more misleading than ever. So we'll be discussing how to spot things like deep fakes, how to protect yourself from disinformation, and how to talk to your friends and family about it. As always, this fact-based journalism and vital information will be free and accessible to all. As a public service newsroom, donations for from you help us take on ambitious reporting projects like this one. Every single gift makes a difference. Go to marketplace.org slash give tech. Making law is hard to do. Just ask the EU. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace Tech. I'm Lily Dramali. It is Friday, which means it's time for our Week in Review, Marketplace Tech Bytes. On the show today, Epic Games won its antitrust lawsuit against Google this week, what it means for the players, and why the rest of big tech is watching. Plus, Netflix releases viewing data for its entire streaming catalog for the first time. Just what did we all watch? But first, it took 37 hours of marathon negotiations for the European Union to pass what's being called the world's most ambitious law regulating AI. Now the hard part, hashing out the details, a process that got underway this week. Axios Tech Policy reporter Maria Curie joined me to talk about Europe's AI Act. This is a really big deal. I mean, it's 450 million uh, consumers in Europe that will eventually be impacted and huge market for the biggest tech companies as well as smaller players. Um, it's also important because once again, Europe is leading the way in global regulation. Um, the U.S. likely won't do exactly what the EU does, but uh, certainly people here are paying attention to how it all plays out in the EU to inform policymaking here. What does the law require tech companies to do if they do you know, want to move forward and operate in the EU? So this deal, which was reached last Friday, uh, does a few things. It categorizes um, AI rules based on risk. So minimal risk, limited, high, and unacceptable risk. And each category has its own um, set of rules. Um, it also creates mechanisms for monitoring advances in the technology. It enforces transparencies. And so companies are going to have to disclose certain data and certain information about the products they're developing. And it also imposes financial penalties for noncompliance. So companies could pay up to 7% of global revenue um, if they don't comply with the different aspects of the law. Yeah, and it looks like there is still quite a bit to hash out here. Officials have almost a dozen technical meetings scheduled over the next several months. Uh, what are some of the details left to work out? 
So part of the reason why those 37 hours were so long and gruesome was because there were two major um, issues at play that were being debated by, you know, France, Germany, and Italy that wanted to water down parts of the bill. Three of and the biggest economies in the EU, we should mention. That's right. That's right. And then Parliament, who was opposed to doing that. And the first issue is really uh, the most contentious one. It has to do with uh, facial recognition for policing and national security reasons. Um, and what the basically the, the conclusion they came to is that scraping uh, faces or security footage from the internet to create a facial recognition uh, database was not going to be allowed, but there are going to be exemptions. So for example, law enforcement can still, still use real-time recognition to combat things like trafficking, terrorist threats, to track down criminals more generally. Um, but one of the things that still has to be hashed out in the implementation process is what legal basis these things are going to um, be implemented with. Um, the second major issue that was up for debate and why lawmakers were up for 37 hours straight um, was this issue of foundation models. Um, and so, you know, just to back up a little bit, this act was first proposed more than two years ago. And the reason why there has been such a delay is because after it had been proposed, you had uh, chat GPT and chatbots come onto the scene which of course um, work off of foundation models or large language models. And so this is one of the, the final sticking points that officials were debating and you know how to categorize these models that have such a huge potential for innovation. Um, if we were to put if they were to put them under the high risk category, they would have been subjected to very onerous you know reporting requirements, data disclosure, rigorous testing. Um, so instead, they landed on uh, categorizing it as a general purpose AI system, general in the sense that you could use a chatbot to come up with a cake recipe, or you could use it to you know, spread disinformation. And from there, they decided how to actually impose rules on companies that are developing these models. And we see a lot of this conversation framed around this notion of not wanting to stifle innovation. We saw those uh, three countries that you mentioned kind of framing it in that way. We also see that framing here uh, from people like Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Um, but it's it's more in the context of like a national security thing, right, where it's like we need to compete in the U.S. with China on AI. We don't want to put too many guardrails around this, right? That's right. And in addition to that, um, they don't want companies to innovate in other places, even in ally uh, countries uh, like the countries that make up the EU. And so part of the reason why they don't want regulation that is too heavy handed, both Republicans and Democrats, is because they want the innovation to continue happening in the U.S. and want to remain globally competitive in that sense as well. Um, and so you, even though a lot of the details still need to be hashed out, you see a lot of lawmakers here already saying we're probably not going to go as far as the EU. Yeah. And last thing quickly, if we could, um, your colleague Ryan Heath has been writing around how there there is a catch to this. The law that the EU just passed doesn't take effect until 2025. Mm -hmm. So there's there's basically this ask can you know of the tech companies to voluntarily comply. How do you think that's going to go? You know, I don't think that they are going to uh, play ball that easily. I mean, uh, to a certain degree, they are eventually going to have to deal with this and starting to figure out how they're going to comply is probably a good business practice. But if it's going to mean not innovating or releasing new products, um, I don't think that they're going to have a, a much of an appetite for that. 
We'll be right back with more of Marketplace Tech Bytes Week in Review with Axios reporter Maria Curie. You're listening to Marketplace Tech. I'm Lily Jamali. We're back with reporter Maria Curie of Axios. We're going to move now to our second story, Epic Games winning its antitrust lawsuit against Google. A federal jury in San Francisco on Monday deciding unanimously that Google's Play Store violated antitrust laws. Um, Maria, let's go back to the beginning to 2020 when Epic tweaked the Fortnite app so that users could pay Epic directly instead of going through Apple and Google's payment sharing systems. Epic is then removed from the app stores for both companies. What should we take away from what the jury decided here? I think one of the things that we need to take away is that once again, the action is happening in the courts, not on Capitol Hill. And even though uh, the effects of this, the real world effects of this won't be seen for a long time because Google has decided to appeal the case and that could delay this by years. Um, ultimately, if Epic is successful, it could mean that consumers are having more options for apps and could be paying lower prices. And that is because that 30% cut that Google takes from hosting these apps would no longer be a factor. And to your point about that appeals process, which yes, could exactly take years. There's no doubt about that. Their argument is that they compete fiercely with Apple's App Store and others on Android devices and gaming consoles. Uh, So we're going to be watching this wend its way through the courts. Um, Wired called this the first significant U.S. courtroom loss for big tech in years. What does the verdict in Epic's case against Google mean for other big tech companies? Are they worried right now? Well, even though um, Epic lost a similar case against Apple, I think uh, the fact that it won this against Google um, could be promising for the smaller developers and a warning sign for the bigger companies. And the Apple case that they uh, lost is um, their Epic is asking for it to be taken up by the Supreme Court. So that is not a resolved matter either. Um, and we're also seeing Google face a different court challenge brought by the Justice Department here in Washington, D.C., based on potential uh, monopoly powers over its search engine. And so uh, even though Congress continues to lag behind and not really move on this issue, I think companies are on alert because of all of the uh, action that could happen in the courts. Yeah, a lot happening with Google and uh, these competition uh, actions on various fronts. More to come there. So we're going to move to our third and final story, Netflix releasing viewing data for its entire streaming catalog. The company on Wednesday posting new data on every show and movie on the platform for the first time. Um, So we had the weekly top 10, Maria. We had the most popular lists. Now we're going to be getting a whole lot more on a somewhat regular basis. It looks like every six months or so. What stood out to you as you were looking through this first batch of what Netflix is calling what we watched, this new report? What stood out to me was that The Crown was not listed, which is very surprising. (laughs) And um, I actually didn't recognize a lot of those titles, (laughs) so I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Um, I think you might be actually doing work is the answer to that. (laughs) Okay, I'll take it. Um, Yeah, 100 billion hours of content watched a year. That's that's a lot. But uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's going to really help the writers, the producers, the actors who fought for this transparency um, in the Hollywood strikes to 
you know, kind of show the impact of their work and uh, hopefully get more compensation. Yeah, this was a huge ask in the strikes brought by um, by writers and actors earlier this year. And Bloomberg Lucas Shaw made this point, and I think it's really important. There was a time when creatives were actually just fine not having a lot of data. Uh, it, it sort of took some of the pressure off. You know, if you had a bad ratings week, you, that could kill your show once upon a time. Um, but I was really struck hearing Netflix's co-CEO, Ted Sarandos talking about how over time it's clear to him that this lack of transparency has really created trust issues with the creative mm -hmm. community. Yeah, he said it created distrust with producers, creators, and the press. At the same time, he didn't attribute the disclosure of this data to the strike directly. Um, but I think, you know, being able to have metrics around this stuff uh, does help people and workers when they're bargaining in many different settings. And uh, this shows that, you know, uh, Hollywood is no different. Um, but it, it is true that, you know, popularity doesn't always mean quality, especially in the arts. And so it is an interesting point that using numbers now is, is something new and different. Yeah. We do have to tick off a couple of names here. So The Crown, not on the list, uh, to my dismay and yours, it sounds like. Yes. The political thriller <laughs> The Night Agent was the most watched title in the world on Netflix for the first half of this year, followed by Ginny and Georgia season two and the debut of the South Korean series The Glory. I have watched exactly zero hours of any of those shows. <laughs> Me either. But now I have weekend plans, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but can we just dwell for one moment on this? The Night Agent generated 812.1, I love the point one, million hours of viewing. Just that one show. That is amazing to me. Yeah, that's absolutely wild. But people clearly love to Netflix and chill and decompress that way. And that's also very relatable. <laughs> that was Maria Curie at Axios. You can find the full video of this episode of Marketplace Tech Bytes Week in Review on our YouTube channel, Marketplace APM, and subscribe if you haven't already to watch us every Friday. Rosie Hughes produced this episode. Jesus Alvarado and Daniel Shin also produce our show. Gary O'Keefe and Becca Weinman are our engineers. Daisy Palacios is our senior producer. Kelly Silvera is our executive producer. I'm Lily Jamali, and that's Marketplace Tech. This is APM. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.